Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, bringing you the show this week from the World Economic Forum at Davos. And we're asking, how is war in Ukraine changing the world economy? It's the place high up in the Swiss Alps where the global elite have gathered since economist Klaus Schwab founded the forum 51 years ago. Ever since, he's convened business and political leaders along these days with NGOs, texters and a sprinkling of celebrities with pet causes, all debating major issues that impact global well-being. It's the first time the forum has met in over two years and a smaller gathering this time. Instead of the usual snow-capped mountains in winter, spring flowers and sunny showers have been all around us. The wider backdrop is, however, frosty. Russian delegates disinvited and the Russia House recast as an exhibition of war crimes committed against Ukraine. In the hubbub of the conference centre just behind me and over some fine dining in ritzy hotels in the evening, the spectre of a recession and deglobalisation are the dominant concerns. So how are the two scenarios interlinked and how will war in Europe affect an already stressed worldwide economy? Later, we'll hear from historian and economist Adam Tooze for a long view of events and from Adina Friedman, president and CEO of NASDAQ, for a perspective from the markets. But first, I'm joined by the economist team here with me at Davos. Patrick Fowles is The Economist's business affairs editor and Rachna Shanberg is our finance and economics editor. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Anne. And hi, Rachna. Hi, Anne. Thanks both for escaping your bilaterals to join me. Patrick, the World Economic Forum, the WEF, as we say around here, is back after its two-year break. Does it feel like the same old Davos to you or a new era? I think it's different in two notable ways. One is the time of year. So normally this event happens in January. It's now happening in in May. And I'm reliably told by one of the people organising it that the air conditioning almost broke down on the first day and everyone was going to sort of roast to death in the conference centre, which would be a new problem. But the other big change is really who's here. And Anne, you mentioned the Russians who are obviously not present, but the Chinese are not here either. And we've picked up from one of the very few mainland Chinese people here that there's probably about 10 Chinese delegates officially at Davos. Normally it would be several hundred. And I think in a way that speaks to the broader picture of a fractured world where we have big blocks of the world not here and a sort of division between Western countries and some emerging countries and those two big autocratic powers. Ratcha, this is your first Davos, so I suppose you'll less noticing who's not here than who is. What's your impression? I have to say, as an economist, this sounds a little bit geeky, but it's a very efficient way to meet people. You're sort of speed dating with bigwigs, finding out what they think about the world, exchanging ideas with them. It's just a very impressive way to meet people, especially after two years of being locked up and barely seeing anybody. It's great. There is something about turning around and finding yourself lodged between a major hedge funder, a central banker and a prime minister or deputy prime minister, thinking how long you would normally 
have to wait to access these people. So from our point of view, that works very well. But Patrick, the agenda this year is obviously very conditioned by Ukraine and by coming out of the pandemic. Which speakers have stood out to you as encapsulating the problems we face? Well, we had President Zelensky tune in to a breakfast meeting. I think you could get a sense of him galvanising the room and, and just how dominant the war is, particularly for the European and American people here, both in a geopolitical and even moral sense, but also just because of the economic implications. The interesting thing we've picked up is that for a lot of the participants who are from Asia here, the war doesn't feel that central to them. And it feels a very Western-centric way of thinking about the world. That is interesting because we even talk at that breakfast where Zelensky came on the broadcast of it being a Ukrainian Davos. And some people are saying this very proudly. And I suppose it is for those who are very focused on the Ukraine crisis. But Rachna, I mean, when you're looking more broadly and talking to people from all across the world, do you think that they see it that way? Or is this just one of a number of things that are moving around on the agenda of concern? There's lots of worries on the minds of business people and the central bankers and policymakers we've been talking to. One is the economic and business impact of the war. The other concern is what all of this means for the world economy. In Europe, there are worries that if there were an embargo on oil and gas, the continent might slip into recession. Lots of people worried about what's going on in China, the zero COVID strategy and lockdowns there and what that means for supply chains. So I think Pretty much everybody we spoke to seemed to have some sort of doomsday disaster scenario and what that might mean for their business and the economy that they oversee. Global food prices were rising even before the war. They're now soaring and expected to remain high. The UN estimates the fifth of Ukraine's wheat harvest will be lost in future harvests in Russia and Ukraine in jeopardy on top of other problems with fertilizer supply. What are the short-term and long-term solutions that could mitigate this impending food crisis, Patrick? The thing everyone's focused on is whether there could be some kind of agreement over releasing the food stocks that are in Odessa and whether the Russians would sign up to that, whether perhaps the Turkish government could lead that effort. But it needs to be some kind of agreed approach. I think the second bucket is switching foodstuffs and changing people's diets. So we had a long chat with someone closely involved with this in India where the diminished supply of wheat, which is partly because the production in India has been suffered from the hot weather there, is going to be replaced by rice. And then I think longer term, you know, it points to the importance of using, I think, technology to deal with climate change and can we grow more drought-resistant crops? Can we irrigate new parts of the world? But it's clear that the risk of this kind of food crisis is actually rising because of climate change and that's become another big long-term priority. I think something that I gained a bit of insight into is the difficult decisions that need to be made by ministers. So a couple that we talked to, for example, had introduced bans on exports listening to their motivation for why they had done that and the kind of domestic consequences of not being able to afford grain for public programs at a time when they know that demand would be really high, for example, just lays out how difficult this question is, I think. Patrick, you're a former correspondent in India and protectionism there and the wheat export ban looks like a bit of a signal that this could become more commonplace as countries look to shore up their own supplies. Do you think that is what's beginning to happen? Well, let me give you the case for the defence from India, which we heard in detail. 
in essence, India is not normally a major wheat exporter and has never been. Secondly, India has a big public procurement program. I think it's 45 million tonnes a year, which it distributes to hundreds of millions of very poor people. Now, because the wheat crop has been hurt by the very hot weather, the size of that stockpile is halved. So India's ability to distribute food to hundreds of millions of people on the borderline has halved in effect. So I think the Indians argue we were never a big structural part of the wheat market. We've had a genuine crisis of production and our hand has been forced. And my sense is a lot of governments are aware of the danger of a kind of tit for tat series of bans on the global trading system, but also that quite a lot of governments are being put in a really, really difficult situation where probably they ultimately have to value the welfare of their population ahead of other countries. And that's obviously dangerous. The World Bank warned recently that war in Ukraine is set to cause the largest commodity shock since the 1970s, the increase in energy prices, the largest since the oil crisis of 1973. I'm struck, Rachna. I mean, I haven't been coming since 1973. <laughs> that, that, don't laugh. I'm not that old. But that was the, the period when Klaus Schwab was uh, setting up the World Economic Forum precisely to look at the impacts and get people together to look at the impacts of major developments and shocks in the world economy. Here we are in another similar era. Do you think high energy prices are the result and are here to stay? Part of the reason why energy prices are high at the moment is, of course, the war in Ukraine and some of the sanctions being put on Russia, making it hard for Russia to sell its oil and gas. The question is whether climate change and climate policy then means that we may well be in a world of higher energy prices for a time to come, or at least very volatile energy prices. And that's something that a couple of the central bankers that I spoke to in the past couple of days are thinking about, you know, what does this mean for how you set interest rates? What does this mean for how people think about inflation and how people perceive inflation to be? I mean, if they think it's going to be higher for longer, then they start changing how they think about the wages that they need and the income that they need. And so, again, a very sort of tricky problem here for central bankers and trying to work out how persistent this shock is going to be is one of the big questions of the day. I think that's right, Rachel, and the sort of uncertainty is clear. I mean, we spoke to one of the big state-owned oil companies. They obviously have a particular side in, the, in this discussion, but, you know, they did make two quite pertinent points, I thought. One is that travel is just coming back properly, and that could increase the demand for oil by two or three million barrels a day from the normal level of roughly 100, which means there's another upward demand on energy. And then secondly, the hostility towards the oil and gas industry and the demand that it does the renewable energy transition has meant capital investment in fossil fuels has dropped probably quicker than is optimal. And the result is, I think, over the next few years, you will have quite tight energy markets, simply because there isn't a big extra supply of capacity in the world. It does sound as if countries will find themselves with an invidious choice between tackling the energy crisis and climate change, which many attendees here for years have been saying, now we're going to get serious about this. Do you see that, uh, Patrick, as a tension that comes back to the fore from the back of this crisis in Ukraine and the other unwelcome events in the background? Yeah, well, you're seeing governments probably subsidise fossil fuels, right, to keep the price down. So that's almost the exact opposite of what, from a carbon perspective, you'd hope would happen. And then I think a lot of governments are scrambling around to secure new arrangements for the supply of gas from places like Qatar or 
the rearrangement of the oil system as the West stops buying Russian oil. So in the short term, everyone's on in a kind of desperate scramble to subsidise the cost of fossil fuels, keep the cost down, find new supplies. And then you'd hope that on a slightly longer term horizon, probably about five years, the rate of investment in renewables is actually going to be quite a bit higher. Now, if you ask me if I think that's going to happen, I would say yes. So I don't think what's happening is completely devastating for the climate in the sense the short term is you've got to do what's necessary to keep people warm and electricity running and so on. And then probably the sense of prioritisation of climate change a bit further out, I think, is much higher than it was here, say, two years ago. I'll be back in five years and find out if you were right. Ratchna, record high food and energy prices mean that inflation is on the increase all around the world. Which countries are feeling it most? And are you seeing a potential peak here? Pretty much everywhere. I think with the exception of China, even Japan is experiencing for the first time in a while a little (laughs) bit of inflation. Will it be here for a while? I think in Quite a few places were probably around the peak in terms of annual inflation rates. But the question now is, after a decade of inflation being too low, whether we're now going to be in a world of inflation that's a little bit higher than policymakers would like. So, you know, will people just get used to demanding higher wages? Will their expectations of inflation start to rise? And that's something that we've been looking into and thinking a little bit about. And if you look at labour markets in America, even parts of Europe, they're really quite tight. So there's a lot of demand for workers. There are vacancies chasing fewer and fewer unemployed people. So you bring that all together and it does seem like there's a bit of impetus for inflation to stay a little bit higher than maybe central banks would like. And I think if you hear what the bosses say, it's a kind of central bank's nightmare. So what the central banks want is the companies to say, well, costs are going up, but we won't raise prices, you know, we'll take a hit on our profits. All of the companies are saying, we'll pass it through to customers. And what is more, we're expecting a big wage rise for our employees at the end of this year. So the picture from companies, I think, is unequivocally that inflation has taken hold and is not going to be that easy to get back down. I find myself in a coffee queue with two central bankers behind me only at Davos. Lucky you find you. Exactly. Really? Exactly. I should get it. I should have had your job. Maybe not. Um, but there they were, you know, both having a very intense conversation about inflation, how to tame inflation, the kind of pressures that they felt they were under and some of the critiques they were getting from uh, economists here at, at Davos and, and obviously beyond. And it just reminded me how much it is on their minds. What are the the tools that are left in the kit to tame inflation, Rachna? Well, I used to cover the European Central Bank and I really didn't think I would see them talking about raising interest rates for a very long time. But it seems like, you know, the signalling is very clear that they're going to be raising interest rates. Central banks in America, you know, Federal Reserve and, the, and in the UK, the Bank of England have been raising interest rates already. They've pretty much all stopped their bond buying schemes. So those are the sorts of levers that they've got in their in their toolbox. And I think the danger, obviously, the thing everyone's worried about is, you know, in order to be credible, particularly the Fed has got to both raise interest rates and, if you like, be seen to be raising interest rates quite emphatically. And the danger is that causes a more big ructions in financial markets, which we've seen so far this year, and, and ultimately may trigger a recession in the US. So that's the kind of calculus that I think a lot of people are trying to get their heads around. It's undoubtedly a worrisome time for the global economy. The head of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, declined to rule out global recession if the situation in Ukraine worsens. To what extent do you think recession fears are already materialising? 
you look around the world and there are different pockets of risk. So Europe is much more exposed to the energy shock coming its way. That's the big danger there. America's got this inflation problem. It's worse than anywhere else. And the Fed may have to effectively trigger a recession to get it under control. And then you have the really big wild card of China, where can you really have a zero COVID policy with the Omicron variant and also not have repeated lockdowns that effectively cut growth to a much lower level? So I think there is in all of the big three pillars of the world economy, really quite obvious and glaring risks. Probably in China and in Russia, their economies are shrinking. Russia because of the impact of sanctions. China because of lockdowns. We saw some dreadful monthly activity figures for the month of April come out last week, which really kind of scared markets a little bit, I think. In places like Europe and America, maybe it's still a risk that is yet to materialise. And, you know, everybody's laying out the conditions in which these economies might fall into recession, but we're probably not there yet. 2022 has certainly been a stormy year for the financial markets. So to hear how volatility has impacted trading, I spoke to Adina Friedman, President and CEO of New York's Nasdaq Stock Exchange. I always try to put myself in the mind of an investor. And when you are thinking about an investor investing in a stock or investing in any sort of market, their job is to try to predict the future, you know, the future earnings of a company. And if you think about an investor today and they're taking all those externalities and trying to factor those into, let's say, a discounted cash flow analysis for a company, it's very, very difficult to understand how you would then discount future cash flows. I think on the back of that, that is making it difficult for investors to make conviction buying decisions. It's much easier to sell than to buy right now. And you are obviously seeing that manifest itself in the markets. I think the other thing is you know, the news of the day is, is factoring into the markets in a way that I think that you don't normally see when you have a lot of stability in the environment around you. Because in, investors can process that news in the context of a conviction buying decision and to determine what that means in terms of factoring it in. But when you have all these other externalities on top of that and then you have news pouring in every day, it makes it very difficult for them again to make those decisions, which of course then contributes to the volatility in the markets. I wondered if you could remember a time or a reference point in history that was like this, where, as you say, world events in different parts of the world are impacting very quickly and directly on the markets and taking out the financial crash as being a bit of a case of its own. But does it remind you of anything? I actually think that it doesn't, actually, to be honest with you. And I've been with Nasdaq since 1993, so I have definitely seen different cycles. I think that this is very interesting because we're finding now the global supply chains, that is a part of the economy that really has changed dramatically in the last 10 to 20 years. So the reliance that we have, the interdependence we have on each other has made it so that world events somewhere else in the world have an impact on your own domestic market, right? I think the second thing is technology has really kind of brought us all closer together, but also has made information more readily available, which then impacts markets faster. It also makes it so that investors from all over the world have access to markets, but they're also impacting markets and, and the volatility in the markets in new ways as well. In addition to the fact that you have a combination of economic factors like inflation and changes in Fed monetary policy on top of a geopolitical unrest situation in a you know, significant part of the world, on top of the fact that we're, we're still coming out of a pandemic. So the supply chain shocks that are coming off of that, that is a confluence of factors that I don't think we've ever experienced before. Again, investors don't have any point of reference. So when they're, again, they're trying to predict the future, they don't really know what the future could look like because they've never seen it before. Brief word on supply chains. I found two very different views around this year at the World Economic Forum. 
most people saying this is still a real problem and we will see it. We'll see it when we go to order something and it takes ages to turn up or isn't available or the price shoots up. But I've also heard some people saying, well, actually, it's a bit like it's a snake and it's making its way through. But some of those blockages from the pandemic are unblocking and we might get better than expected news when it comes to, say, the next quarter. Where are you on that? Well, I think, first of all, supply chain challenges, there are several factors are contributing to it. Some are structural. So the port system in the United States is just underdeveloped. And therefore, when we had this huge surge of demand for goods, ports just weren't able to accommodate that amount of supply coming into the country. And that is a, a challenge that will work itself out. It's a little bit more like a pig in a python, right, moving, moving its way through. I think, though, <laughs> but then you also then have the supply chain shocks from, let's say, the lockdowns in China. I think that that's a new factor that then has to work its way through, hopefully, as China returns to a normal operating model in the next few weeks or months. Then you have the geopolitical rest that really creates supply chain shocks in food and energy. So all of those have to work their way through the system. So some may abate, you know, those pandemic-related a demand-oriented, I would say, uh, supply chain shocks for goods, those I think that they might abate over time. But then you have to still see these new ones working their way through. And I think that's why it will probably be a little bit more of a longer lasting challenge. I think a pig and a python is going to be my lasting metaphor to take away <laughs> from this Tavos. It was a record-setting 2021 in the IPO market. This year is a lot more challenging. What are you seeing in terms of companies wanting to go public or taking a bit more of a let's wait and see let's hold back the big plan we have about 270 companies on file to list on nasdaq right now which is actually a higher number than we had at the same time last year however i think that they are certainly waiting to make sure that when they go to market that investors are ready to take that risk with their capital and put their investment behind them so you have to understand when a company is thinking about the public markets, they're, think, they're thinking about a few things. One, are they ready? You know, do they have the control structures in place? Do they have the ability to discuss their business plans? Do they have the ability to help investors predict the future through you know, an understanding of the business model and how it's going to progress? But then also, are investors there and ready to put their capital to work to take a risk on a company that you know, they may have only met once? I think that that's where the challenge is right now. We have a lot of companies that, frankly, are quite ready. I've met with a lot of really, really interesting businesses that want to access public investors, but they don't want to know that those investors are ready to invest in them. And right now, I think that's a very difficult calculus for investors. So you're seeing companies on the sideline for the period of time. We'd like to think that if inflationary effects start to abate and therefore the monetary policy decisions the Fed's making are starting to have a positive impact, supply chains start to improve. Those two things, I think, alone will make it much more comfortable for investors to be able to make that risk decision. There's always tomorrow in the markets. There's always the day after tomorrow. Always. <laughs> the week after tomorrow, the year after tomorrow. What do you think the longer term challenges are? Yes, the markets are an eternal journey always. I think that the challenges for the markets as we go forward is just finding our footing. Having some of these unknown factors become a little bit more known. Starting to see some directional element to the broader economy, which then, of course, will create more direction to the markets. Now, the big challenge that we have in the United States is having the Federal Reserve make their policy shifts and do it successfully, and I would say gracefully, in a way that draws some of the demand out of the market, tries to take some of that growth down without turning it into negative territory. 
And I think that that's a confluence of things. One is the underpinning of the U.S. economy continues to be fairly strong when you look at consumer spending and you look at some of the underpinnings. Also, fiscal policy decisions that were made a year ago are still deploying capital into the system. But at the same time, I think that consumers need to feel confident about their future, too, because that factors into whether or not they start to pull back on spending, they save their money, therefore the demand curve comes down. So they want some of that, but they don't want too much of that. So I think that's the delicate dance that the Fed's going to have to undertake. Adina Friedman there ending our conversation with her thoughts on what the picture is for the markets in the years ahead. One of the daunting challenges facing world leaders meeting here at Davos or watching from afar is the eventual reconstruction of Ukraine. In his address on Monday to the forum, President Volodymyr Zelensky said his country had suffered half a trillion dollars of losses. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, called for more European solidarity. To explore how reconstruction might work and what implications the war will have on the future economic world order, I spoke to the historian and economist Adam Tooze. I started by asking him what shape the Ukrainian economy was in when the war began. It was an economy experiencing rapid growth just before the war, but over the last 10 years, its track record has been miserable. In fact, going all the way back to the 1990s, it's one of the slowest growing economies in the world, if you can believe the data. And that in the Ukraine is a big issue. Any expert on the region will tell you the GDP numbers are, are messy. They don't include a lot of activity in the black economy. It was not a political economy in good shape. And if you go back to the meetings between the Zelensky government, now the heroes of the Western world and the IMF World Bank and Western governments in 2021, I mean, the attitude is one of contempt. They were not really in high standing. And the war has completely transformed Ukraine's political position, but as you say, at huge cost. And so this is why there's all the talk now of a Marshall Plan for Ukraine which to my mind is optimistic in the sense the Marshall Plan was actually a relatively light touch intervention by comparison with what we are considering in economies that were fundamentally quite strong, like Germany, for instance, after World War II, easy to restart. The kind of effort that will be necessary in Ukraine to rebuild the huge damage of the war and then actually launch the economy, the goal would be to push Ukraine into the kind of category that Poland is in, right? And that's the comparator the locals use because Poland used to be in the Soviet era, at a lower GDP per capita, believe it or not, than Ukraine, and has obviously surpassed it dramatically. So if that's the high ambition, it will take huge levels of external funding to get Ukraine there, probably 20 to 30% of GDP over a period of 10 years, perhaps. The Marshall Plan was far smaller than what we will need to do. In fact, we've already done a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. Marshall Plan dimensioned aid after 2013-2014, and it didn't work in the sense it didn't transform Ukraine's economic prospects. And now we've had a war, and now we're going to have to go even bigger. There's no doubt at all about that. The scale of the aid will be, we're probably talking 100 billion euros minimum. That is the sort of money, for instance, that the EU contemplates spending on Poland over the next seven years or so in the multi-annual budget framework. So we're talking a bit like with NATO, de facto EU membership and the sort of scale of aid that you receive through structural adjustment and regional funding within the EU for a non-EU member. I think that's the future. And that is very large scale. It's a huge commitment, both institutional, political and financial, and will require some pretty tough choices in Brussels, I think, because the military aid is overwhelmingly coming from the US, but there's no reason to expect that American political system will maintain a long-term civilian aid program for Ukraine. 
that in itself is interesting. You think it's a humanitarian course, but in the economic sense, a problem that's going to come back to Europe's doorstep rather than be sorted out by the US Treasury and whoever's in the White House. Well, I think the IMF and the World Bank may help, and that's probably the way in which America, which has a preponderant vote on both, will support this. But it is on Europe's doorstep. It's exactly the sort of strategy that Brussels really was inching its way towards for the last decade and now I think needs to embrace. But the problem, of course, is it has to be then reciprocated on the Ukrainian side. Let's turn to Russia's economy under a wide raft of sanctions. And yet it seems to be reasonably resilient. Why do you think that is? Is that simply that Russia's economy, which always gets a bit of a bad rap when it's reviewed, is actually stickier than many expected. I don't think we should ever have been naive to the extent that we were about the robustness of a big, sophisticated economy like Russia's. You only have to look at the example of Iran, which has been living for years under sanctions. They don't implode, right? These are very sophisticated societies who struggle, improvise, substitute, figure out alternatives and, and make a go of it. First of all, you see a huge impact, which is what we're going to see. Somewhere between 5 10 and 15% fall in GDP would not be surprising this year. And I think we're tending now towards the lower end of that spectrum. And then the real question is, can the economy come back and what rate can it grow at? We also have to differentiate between the financial sector, which took a huge hit under the impact of the central bank sanctions, but then subsequently has stabilised. And that's because you just impose a variety of financial restrictions and then the financial system starts stabilising. It doesn't then allow growth, but it will at least no longer be a source of crises. Then there's the real economy, which is suffering from a very severe restriction of imports. And I think the Russian experts expect that to really begin to bite in the third and fourth quarter of this year. And then the other thing we have to bear in mind is that Russia's energy exports are continuing, right? So they continue to earn maybe as much as a billion dollars a day by selling oil and gas to the world. And Russia is turning to China and India to expand trade routes, which will mean it is less dependent on Western markets. To what extent can it hope to offset damage to its economy in that way? In the short run, it's a poor substitute. In the longer run, it's less of a painful trade-off, especially with regard to its major exports of energy and with gas in particular with regard to Europe. It was quite clear that in the long run, Europe was on the decarbonisation path anyway, and the growth markets are in Asia under any scenario, even the most greenest of scenarios. The oil sales, you know, oil is a huge fungible market. They'll find people that will buy their oil at a discount in any scenario. More broadly, I think the real issue is, does Russia have a future as something other than a commodity supplier to whoever will buy their stuff? And that's where the real pain is, I think. And that's where you also see the desperation of the Russian middle and upper middle class, who many of whom have emigrated, because they no longer see a future for their Russia in essentially being a second-tier raw material supplier to Asia. That is the prospect. The Economist has written about the war in Ukraine accelerating the world's division into economic blocks and Russia looking more eastwards while the West will have to trade more with geopolitical allies and that globalisation that we've all been writing about, thinking about for so long. Is that the way that you see things evolving? I'm not convinced that the idea of blocks is going to be terribly helpful in this because those seem to me to imply a kind of clarity of division and alignment of the different parts within the world's power structure in terms of hard power, tech, soft power, finance, raw materials and so on, all aligning in fixed 
blocks, right? Which is the sort of Cold War model, where if you're in the on the Western side, you get your gas and your oil from Saudi Arabia, or whatever. If you're on the Soviet side, you get it from Russia, and so on and so forth. That kind of segmentation. What I see more is a series of sort of polarized, overlapping networks. In which power is expressed differentially depending on the type of network you're talking about. So, to be concrete, when Biden goes to Asia, what he's looking to do is somehow align the economics with the military and political security pact the United States is trying to create, and he's having an incredibly hard time doing it because it's not clear that America can any longer articulate a trade-based block with Asia. It doesn't have the cards because of American domestic politics. So instead, what I think we're going to see is a security policy alignment of Asia with the United States. And on the other hand, a trade policy alignment through structures like RCEP, the big free trade zone, which takes them more towards China because of the dynamo of China's economic growth when that resumes. And I think there is a presumption that even if it takes a hit, it will at some point resume at a pace of maybe 4 or 5% per annum, which is still very considerable. So I think that to me is the complexity here is polarization, yes, increasing tension, yes, but not a neat division into segments along the Cold War lines. We've talked about how the war will affect Europe and uh, the West. What about other countries around the world? I mean, you've raised concern about the looming debt crisis, and particularly in countries like Tunisia and Sri Lanka. And, and a lot of those countries and regions will be sending people to Davos, basically trying to bang the table and say, look, don't forget us. In our big sweeping overviews of the world economy, we are apt to forget the differentiation, the unevenness of economic development. And you can have Algeria and Tunisia side by side in North Africa. And Algeria is experiencing a sudden and unexpected gas price boom. And its regime, which a couple of years ago, The Economist was writing very alarming reports about Algeria for very good reason, right? It looks as though it's riding for a fall is, is boosted by gas exports, whereas Tunisia, which doesn't have the benefit of those to the same extent, is now, I think, under very severe financial and domestic political pressure. So I think that's what we've really got to develop a radar for is this unevenness. Where is it that the combination of rising energy prices, rising food prices and rising interest rates dollar-driven interest rates, Fed-driven interest rates, is going to exert the most pressure. And it's a spotty picture across the world economy and varying by region. Again, going away from this idea of blocks towards a more differentiated view. And policymakers, I think, especially at the World Bank and the IMF, need to be equipped with the resources that allow them to respond flexibly to these crises. We need to have liquidity facilities in place so as to avoid turning squeezes, which are temporary squeezes, into crises which really do very serious damage to the prospect of these societies. That was historian and economist Adam Tooze gazing into his crystal ball to assess the future of the world economy. And to finish our special show from Davos, I wanted to get final thoughts from Patrick Valls, The Economist Business Affairs Editor, and Rachna Shanbog, our Finance and Economics Editor. Patrick, what do you think the longer-term implications of Ukraine will be on the world economy? Well, if you look over three time periods. The first is the immediate commodity inflation shock, which is happening right now and is, is a severe problem. The second is the supply chain adjustment that's happening, starting, and I think it's going to accelerate. People have had the trade war. 
COVID now a hot war in Ukraine and companies are really are beginning to try and come up with a plan B to organize themselves to be more resilient. And that's a really big change that potentially alters how the world economy works compared to the last 20 years. And I think the furthest horizon is the impact of sanctions, actually, because Russia's been partially cut off. The Ukrainians, President Zelensky is demanding even tighter sanctions from the West. And I think a lot of countries that are not aligned on either side or are on the Russian side, like China, are going to be thinking very carefully about how to redesign their financial systems to mitigate or completely protect yourself from Western sanctions. That'll take 10 years, but is a very big trend. Ratchet, the question of whether the war in Ukraine, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic, have sounded the death knell for globalisation looms large over the event here this year. Do you think it's a path to the end of globalisation as we knew it? The death knell for globalisation has been rung so many times that I'm not sure I want to do it again. But I'll make a couple of observations. One is the point about the resilience of supply chains that Patrick mentioned. Since Donald Trump initiated his trade war against China, people have been talking about this as something that might happen, that supply chains might be altered. And for a few years, it felt like people were talking about this, but nothing was really happening. What I found really striking from all the meetings here at Davos was just getting a sense that now this is actually starting to happen, that businesses are starting to think about this, bankers are seeing this sort of activity happening. So that's one sense in which globalisation as we know it might be changing. And then who's here is something that's really struck me. So we haven't seen that many Chinese people, obviously there are no Russians here, but you know we've seen Indians out in full force. You know, when you walk down the main streets, there are sort of kiosk after kiosk for many of the Indian states wanting to get more investment. There are lots of Indian companies here, there are lots of Indonesians here. So maybe that tells you something about how the face of globalization might be changing. In fact, we met one Indian tycoon who complained there were too many Indians around and where, where were the Chinese and, and Americans? So, yeah, definitely right there. Last time I was here, it was 2020, and The Economist asks, pondered whether the world still needs Davos. Has 2022 proven it does or it doesn't? I think it's probably had a pretty bad stress test. You know, the pandemic prevented travel. The geopolitics mean there's huge disagreements. And at the end of the day, it's still happening possibly at a slightly smaller scale with a little bit less pomp and possibly even a little less insincere public comments by people virtue signalling. But it's still here, it's still happening, and I think that probably does suggest it's going to be around for a while longer. Thank you very much indeed for joining me, Patrick Fowles and Ratchin Schoenberg, and my thanks too to Adina Friedman and Adam Tews. Well, I'd be curious to know what you think. What would your priorities be if you had the main stage at Davos? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. As our show draws to a close, so too does another World Economic Forum. And pandemics permitting, the A-listers from politics, business and culture will return to Switzerland to do it all again next year for their usual snowy January gathering. But why exactly does this tiny mountain nation punch far above its weight in business? This week, The Economist has looked into the secret source of the Swiss. To read that and much more, become a subscriber today. Sign up and take advantage of our best introductory offer. Do visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The executive producer is Harriet Noble. And the sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. I'm Anne McElvoy. And from Davos, this is The Economist.